of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. Well, we have some news. We've hit our $75 Patreon goal. Yay! Well, <laughs> thank you to all of you who've been backing us on Patreon. Uh, we weren't expecting to get here this quickly. I, uh... or, or ever, in fact, I think. But... <laughs> yeah, that's why I was going to go, holy crap! <laughs> so, uh, so yes, thank, thank you all for your generosity And, um, well, we're preparing a reward Well, we call it a reward Yes, <laughs> yes, we are preparing a reward <laughs> Well, it amuses us Yeah It's where we need, like, a ping disclaimer <laughs> So we'll be putting out uh, our fanzine, The Blasphemous Tome, issue one We'll be going out to all backers early in the new year Yes. I mean, there's the small matter of writing it first and doing the artwork ah, and, and the layout and stuff like that. Yeah, all, all, all the trivial bits. The important thing is we've got a name. Yes, <laughs> a name and an idea. <laughs> this, this idea of writing stuff before it gets money is a crazy, crazy idea that won't catch on. <laughs> Come on. Tell us about it. <laughs> yeah. How many Kickstarters have you been involved in where it's all been written before? Well, actually, I'm thinking the one that where it was is actually the most delayed, so... That, that's that's no guarantee of anything. I think we're digging a hole here. <laughs> <laughs> we better explain exactly what we're giving to our backers here. So the Blasphemous Tome is fanzine, as we mentioned. Uh, it's going to be a certain number of pages. But the point is that we're going to be sending it to all the pa- the Patreon backers. Uh, if you're in there at the $1 level, you will get a copy of the, the zine. If you're in there at the $3 level, you get a signed copy. And if you're at the $5 level, uh, you'll get both. And don't worry if you're not already on board, there's still time if you really desperately want a copy of it. If you back us on Patreon now, you will get it when it comes out. You mean there are other people that are obsessive about getting every everything that's got Cthulhu in the title uh, add to add to their collection like me? It doesn't have Cthulhu in the title, Matt. Ah, oh, nuts. <laughs> <laughs> the word Cthulhu will appear somewhere in the zine, though. Oh, there you go. That's just, that so, satisfies you know, that's, my that's urge. That's enough for you, right? What, what, yeah. what more do you need? E. Are you backing it, Matt? I might be. You didn't say you get a copy. Oh, nuts. <laughs> <laughs> Contributors' copies, what the hell? Okay, yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're going to be arranging for the printing of it, Matt, so if you get an extra one, we won't notice. Ah, there we go. <laughs> and we should also point out that this will be an old-school pen and paper fanzine, and there will be no PDFs. Mm. Yeah, this is physical only. Like us. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's time for our Lovecraftian word of the... Um... um Week. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. And our Lovecraftian word of the week this week is chaotic. An adjective meaning completely confused or disordered. So, my just, natural state of being, basically. I was going to say, describes me every morning before 12. Yeah. So, is this particularly Lovecraftian word, Scott? Well, I think so, because when we move on to the main topic for the episode, Lovecraft describes his deities an awful lot in terms of chaos. Oh, you yes. Know, the blind idiot god Azathoth at the centre of the universe is inherently chaotic. Nialathotep is the crawling chaos. Yes, and he does sort of describe a chaotic universe, yes. Exactly, and, and it's a word he actually uses quite a lot. There's certainly more than some of the other words we've we've identified as being inherently Lovecraftian. It's only 12 times in his entire body of work, but still, you know, that's significantly more than some of the other ones we've, we, we take as being very Lovecraftian. Mm-hmm. So you would argue that a Lovecraftian universe is chaotic and not lawful? <laughs> yeah. Because it can't be both. Yeah, I, I, I think you're getting a bit of more cock in your Lovecraft there. <laughs> I think a chaotic neutral, personally. Because good and evil are terms that you can't really assign to them. Oh, so if Lovecraft was a character, a, a, a D&D character, he'd play chaotic neutral. Yeah. Sorted. 
Let's take a look at how Lovecraft used some of these words in his fiction. Let's. From the unnameable. Moreover, so far as aesthetic theory was involved, if the psychic emanations of human creatures be grotesque distortions, what coherent representation could express or portray so gibbous and infamous a nebulosity as the spectre of a malign, chaotic perversion, itself a morbid blasphemy against nature? I think that is a full house on the Lovecraftian adjective bingo card, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, we... I hadn't read that one in advance this time, and I saw nebulosity coming up, and I thought, oh my god. <laughs> we got Gibbous, though. We got a Gibbous moon. Yeah, we did get Gibbous. Was it a moon, though? Or was no, it... no, no. No, it's not a moon. It's just a. I, actually, thinking about it, it, it is just a cyclopean short of a full bingo card, isn't it? <laughs> I think so. Yeah, there's a game in it. There's a game right there. Lovecraftian bingo. Lovecraftian <laughs> word of the week bingo. <laughs> and from the nameless city. Presently those voices, while still chaotic before me, seemed to my beating brain to take articulate form behind me, and down there in the grave of unnumbered eon-dead antiquities, leagues below the dawn-lit world of men, I heard the ghastly cursing and snarling of strange-tongued fiends. And from the music of Eric Zahn... Then, one night, as I listened at the door, I heard the shrieking viol swell into a chaotic babble of sound, a pandemonium which would have led me to doubt my own shaking sanity had there not come from behind that barred portal, a piteous proof that the horror was real, the awful, inarticulate cry which only a mute can utter, and which rises only in moments of the most terrible fear or anguish. And now, it's time for our top three Lovecraftian deities. This episode, we're following on from episode 62's discussion of Lovecraftian monsters. This time, we're upping the stakes. I think it's just scary enough that you remember what we do in each episode number. I've got it written down here, Matt. Ah, cheat. (laughs) (laughs) So, our favourite Lovecraftian deities. Yeah. It doesn't get much bigger than that. It sure doesn't. Well, except... What's even bigger than a Lovecraftian deity? Nine Lovecraftian deities. You're getting your money's worth here, folks. Yeah, very Nine of the mortgage board. <laughs> yeah, what, what is the collective noun for, uh, for a mythos deity? A pantheon of. Surely. That's a bit dull. Yeah, I was going to well, say, sorry, but that is a collection of goblins. <laughs> it's, got be, it's got to be something like an abomination. Yeah. Well, that would be a future... I'm sure if you listen to Lovecraftian Word of the Week, Scott, you'd know what the word was. <laughs> But, but if you're out there and you're listening and you've got an idea for what the collective noun should be, yeah. <laughs> so, let's just get into what what constitutes a Lovecraftian deity. Are they all deities, even? Because there are, like, great old ones, and some of them he calls gods, and some of them he doesn't. Well, I think one of the really cool things about Lovecraft, and I've said this in previous episodes, and I'll say it again... Are you going to say that... You can make stuff up, Scott, or well, I'm it's undefined. Say, yeah, that it's undefined, that he doesn't pin down these terms, that he uses them interchangeably, that he true. contradicts himself. And this is fucking awesome. More writers should do this. Yeah, they, they, this, this, is, this is creativity, not stamp collecting. <laughs> Rebel against convention, throw away your classifications and make shit up. <laughs> As with a number of our older episodes, and as with episode 62, we're going to use our top three format here. So we're each going to go around, uh, talk about our runners-up fairly briefly, and then launch into a slightly more impassioned description and defence of our favourite deities. And starting off the countdown, here's round one. If I had to pick one, number three would be from Clark Ashton Smith's story The Charnel God, um, Mordigian. Oh, not a god that gets a lot of screen time. Um, I can only really think of one campaign that he features in, one of the pagan publishing ones, and, without giving a spoiler. Yeah, and, I mean, and at least one other published scenario. Well, yeah, that's just one that I can think of that I didn't write. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, so he's, he is a favourite of mine, and I, I have used him in a scenario. Partly from what um, Paul mentioned about the classification of the, um, the gods that are, or the creatures that I chosen last time around, they're all creatures you couldn't really do much about, and if you had turned up in a scenario, it would probably be the time to run away. Do you want to sum it up in a nutshell what Mordigan's all about for people who might not know? Death. 
That's that pretty much about what he sums him well, up as. To, to be fair, when most Lovecraftian gods turn up, you're going to die. So what is it especially that ties more than I was looking death? for a, a fairly pithy uh, description, but not one word. Really. <laughs> well, it's in a nutshell. It's a very small nutshell. Okay. <laughs> Feel free to expand. Um, he... A small nutshell full of death. <laughs> now, Mordigin is the essence of death. It's almost the Grim Reaper type, um, type figure of the mythos. It's a cloud that everything that goes into it dies. It's, um, it eats the, the corpses of the dead, hence what's referred to as the charnel god. But it's been expanded upon in some stories and some bits like the Cthulhu Mythos Encyclopedia has a good set of definitions for him, of like extrapolations of what it means, as well as Trail of Cthulhu in the, um, the different interpretations that it represents gods as. Has said that this is a god that will eventually consume all the great old ones, that it's almost like a Le Comte de Saint-Germain figure in Unknown Armies, that it's the last god that kind of shuts the door on the universe, that it is the death of everything. Ah. So, so, so it's almost like the embodiment of entropy. I think of another god that does that more, um, more specifically. It's more about the ending of things rather than the breakdown of things. Right. Um, it's the full stop. Yeah, it's, it is the end dot. Yes. I think it's, it's a wonderful tool. It's worshipped by ghouls. Cultists as well can worship. Um, human cultists can worship it. It's a figure that's somewhat ambivalent as well. It doesn't go out of its way to destroy humanity or destroy anything that crosses its path, unless it messes with the bodies of the dead. Um, the bodies of the dead that it considers sacred. But to be fair, I mean, you can say that about most Lovecraftian deities. There are very few of them that will actively seek out and hunt humanity because they generally don't care about us. I mean, there are a few exceptions to this, which we'll probably actually touch on in our countdown. <laughs> but on the whole, that's that's not something I really associate with the mythos. It's, it's probably more when, when I've looked at it, sometimes gods can be treated very much like just a huge monster. They turn up when they're dropped on the ba- um, on the battle map, it stamps on everything in sight. Whereas if you would drop Mordigian onto a situation like that, he'd probably just sit around and look for the nearest corpse. So he's not really going to take a very active role in a, in a game, but he's there as colour and a motivating factor for the, for the cultists or whatever that are associated with him. Yeah, very much so. So if you were to look for one or two interesting or unusual ways of using Mordigian in a scenario, can, can you think of some examples? I'd use him, it's almost, if you wanted to time him with a ghost story, is a good, interesting one that I've toyed with before. Thing of the spooky old house, for instance, lots of shadows moving around. Considering that Mordigian is represented as a vast, smoky shadow, that you, you toy with the idea of him being darkness. Mm. and that he is an ever-present force in an environment, but people don't recognise it for what it is until much later. People have died there or been sacrificed to him, or um, maybe their remains are buried in the place, then that could still be a, a way in for him. Yeah, exactly. One that occurs to me is if you've got a Herbert West-type character who is trying to defeat death, <laughs> you know, looking at it from a very scientific point of view, as soon as you know, he or she starts seeing the more... Kind of mythos-related aspects behind all of this. Maybe Mordekian is something that you know is attempting to counter or shield from, or something. You know, this this influence of pervasive death. Yeah. My number three would be Yogg-Sothoth, mm, the Gate and the Key, the All-in-One. First appearing in the case of Charles Dexter Ward, according to my Encyclopedia Cthuliana. But I know him best from, and as I'm sure we all do, from the Dunwich Horror. Mm. Yogg-Sothoth is unusual in that, well, in Mordigian doesn't have this either, but a lot of the, the Lovecraftian deities are represented as anthropomorphic figures of some kind, whereas Yogg-Sothoth is this kind of, these big iridescent bubbles, basically, which can be of any size, really, from, from a few feet across to, like, half a mile across. Yeah, and I've always sort of pictured him as being some sort of extrusion into three-dimensional space of a multi-dimensional figure, that these bubbles that you're seeing are part of some hyper-dimensional entity, and this is the only way we can perceive it. He seems to be outside of space and time, and doesn't come into our reality very easily. So in the Dunwich Horror... uh, uh, old Man Waitley um, summons up Yogg-Sothoth on Sentinel Hill and his, his daughter, Lavinia, has this, well, has two children uh, by Yogg-Sothoth, one of whom is Wilbur Waitley, who's this fairly monstrous uh, character. And the other one is even more monstrous because he looks more like the father. Mm. Um, but Wilbur talks in the story about, you know, opening the way for Yogg-Sothoth and, and opening the, the route for him to enter our world and that he'll walk on the earth and stuff again. So it's clear that Yogg-Sothoth 
albeit he's very powerful, he seems to be, you know, somehow removed from our reality. And certainly one of the things I love about Yogg-Sothoth as a deity, this is the reason why I've used it myself in at least one thing I've written, is that in a lot of ways he is sort of the ultimate plot device in the Cthulhu mythos because he is the mechanism whereby you can break the laws of time and space. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. If you've got a scenario and you're looking for an excuse why, you know, something happened that involves time travel or dimensional shifts or parallel universes. I'm not saying aliens did it, but Yogg-Sothoth did it. <laughs> he's, he's kind of like, a lot of the gods have a, a, a thing they do. Like, you know, they might relate to, more digging relates to the dead. They have a kind of theme. Yogg-Sothoth just seems to be pretty much, well, time and space, you know, that covers quite a wide uh, palette of weirdness. Yeah, he is basically a very hungry TARDIS. <laughs> Particularly the, the bit for me that definitely appeals with Yog sothoth is the, the aspect of the ultimate gate from through the gates of the Silver Key. Um, that what lies almost the, the centre of all knowledge and that's that revelation of another potentially mm. uh, representation of what Yog sothoth is. Plus you've got the not unpronounceable Tuma at a will avatar. That's so, pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, no, neither of us are going to contradict you there yet. <laughs> um, the figure in the robes, you never yeah. see the face and so on. So you could have anthropomorphic feeling but every, I'd, I'd say yeah, the, the true in inverted commas true form being lots of bubbles yeah the bubbles are the real thing except no inferior imitations <laughs> so my number three spot goes to Gatanathoa I must admit Gatanathoa doesn't necessarily appeal to me directly as a god in the way that some of the other ones we've talked about so far and certainly in the way that some of the ones we will talk about do but what makes him incredibly cool for me is what he does. He comes from the Lovecraft and Hazel Healed collaboration out of the eons and he is the god of the volcano. He's pretty much trapped in a volcano that you know kind of ancient sorcerers have trapped him uh, in this this the remains of the volcano Yadith Go on Mu. He occasionally sort of leaks out through a trapdoor. And when he does, <laughs> he does. What kind of volcano is this? It's got a trapdoor in it. <laughs> I, I'm just keeping now thinking of the '80s cartoon. There's something down. There. Sorry to, yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's what going on here? It, it, from the story, it actually says oozing and surging up out of that yawning trapdoor in the Cyclopean crypt. I had glimpsed such an unbelievable behemoth and behemothic monstrosity that I could not doubt the power of its original of its original to kill with its mere sight. So, see, trapdoor. Trapdoor. But, um, yeah, moving past the trapdoor, that last bit about killing with its mere sight, that's the creepy part. But it's not the fact that it kills. It doesn't. It's not going to let you off the hook that easily. If you catch sight of Gatanathoa, you will begin to change. Your body turns leathery, your sinews and your bones ossify. You become an undying mummy. The one thing that doesn't change inside you is your brain. Your brain stays alive, unconscious, and for however long your body survives, you will be trapped in there, aware of what has happened to you. That is really fucking creepy. I'm sorry, I just still can't get the image of the blue plasticine uh, figure called Burke. That's, that's all that's stuck in my head now. <laughs> Remember from the Trapdoor cartoon? I never watched it. I, I, no, I, I, I never actually saw the show, but I played the computer game back in the 80s. There was a computer game of Trapdoor? Yeah, on the, on the Spectrum in Commodore 64, yeah. Oh, wow, okay. It was shit. <laughs> oh, Burke, feed me. <laughs> I've been told by a reliable source recently, Scott, and I'm putting two and two together here, and I'm figuring why you're so attracted to this deity. Attracted is a really strange word to use in that context. Dundee is built on a volcano. <laughs> <laughs> uh, My source tells me it's extinct. In fact, tells me too many times that it's extinct. That mm. makes me wonder if it really is. D no, you, you have stumbled across the, the ultimate secret there. Dundee is, in fact, the location of Lost Moo. So, yeah, I was thinking about a couple of ways of using uh, Gatanathoa in unusual ways. I mean, I have actually used him in a scenario before. One thing I've never seen touched, and, you know, they, uh, touched on, and this may have come up in some published scenario, if so, you know, please correct me, is I've never encountered an avatar of Gatanathoa. 
And it struck me that it might be kind of interesting to have almost a Typhoid Mary type character, someone who is infected with the essence of Gitanothoa and doesn't necessarily realise it, and is sort of going around spreading this infection and this horror by small degrees, you know, as, as he or she passes through people's lives. Perhaps every now and then the aspect comes upon her and, you know... Or she, comes out of her. Yeah. And while she's in a trance or something. Yeah, she, uh, at that stage she looks upon people like Medusa, but instead of turning to stone, they turn to undying leather. Mm. Or worse than that, perhaps it's just a kind of slow thing by degrees that the people who spend time around her just gradually feel these small changes. And they're easy to shrug off at first, and by the time the full horror is revealed, she's moved on to somewhere else, and, and she's just leaving this wake of horror behind her. The other one that occurred to me is, in Link Carter's work, uh, Gitanothoa is described as being the son of Cthulhu. But, I mean, let's let's gloss over that for Yeah, a let's gloss bit. over that. I'm, I'm, not, into all this, trees, I'm no. not into all this god-family relationships. But if you buy that, I mean, how about if Gitanothoa inherited his father's ability to transmit stuff through dreams? And if some particularly sensitive artist had picked up on this the way that, you know, artists do in Call of Cthulhu, and had started making some kind of representation of him. As we know from the story, even representations, idols and stuff like that, can pass on this curse. So, you know, if you've got this, this artist who is starting to, you know, paint or make sculptures or whatever, you know, that, as soon as that starts reaching a wider audience, that is going to be horrible. And continuing our selection, here's round two. For my second choice, I went with a god that's got on the lines of Yogg-Sothoth, is one that's one of the big gods, one where he has a scale, an influence that's... Not un- almost unrivaled amongst the rest of the pantheon. He has a lot of good names that back him up as well. The demon sultan that sits at the centre of ultimate chaos upon his throne. The blind idiot god. Of course, the big man himself, Azathoth. Or, yeah. as- or otherwise, as Lovecraft just put it, hideous name. <laughs> hideous name? Yeah, it was in his, um, in his notes, um, because the, Az- the Azathoth story was never finished. Um, it, I think it was just in his marginalia that he wrote Azathoth, hideous name. Oh. And it was an idea of placeholder to use later. Right, right. Yes. Well, you certainly don't come any bigger than uh, Azathoth, really. Yeah. Just the idea of there being a, a king of the gods, this almost Zeus-like figure, that's not got a grand plan, or if he had, it's long since gone, that it, everything has tumbled into chaos. Well, and as yeah. with our word of the week, yes, chaotic. And the whole thing of him being a blind idiot god that dances madly to these piping figures that dance around his court at the centre of the universe, that says so much about the cross yeah. view of the, of the universe, really. It's, yeah. it, it's stolen from Dunsany, in a way, from uh, Mani Yadsushi, uh, or however you pronounce um, the god, from the gods of Pagana. Um, that it's a god that's placated by the beating of drums and the, um, the piping of flutes because it has long since gone mad. It's just a wonderful, evocative image as much as anything else. Yeah, and that name as well, or rather that description, the blind idiot god. I mean, that is just such a powerful thing. And yeah, you're right. I mean, that cuts right to the core of Lovecraft's worldview or his his view of the mythos, his view of the universe. The fact that at the centre of it all is this thing that is devoid of meaning, of being able to create meaning, is devoid of caring. I've seen other Lovecraftian writers and some scenarios touch upon the idea that, you know, Azathoth is nuclear chaos, nuclear explosion, perhaps even the Big Bang. If you accept some aspects of that, I mean, if you take him as being the core of creation, the fact that the core of creation is this, you know, idiot, that again is, is an absolutely powerful thing to say about the universe. Yeah, ultimately it's creation, it's so-called grand design, ultimately it's nothing. That There is no grand design behind it. Um, again, thinking of something that another author, has, uh, or at least a couple of authors have tried to expound upon, was that Azathoth was cursed for some reason that his knowledge or his mind was taken away from him by some other greater force, hitherto as yet un- undefined or unknown, um, for some cosmic crime that he's committed, maybe something in relation to like the, um, the Great Old One's theft of knowledge from the Library of Solano. There's loads of like, little... Interp- fan fiction conspiracy theories of what could have happened as to why uh, why the idiot god ended up the way he is. But I just prefer to think of it as, no, he's always been like that. That's just that creation is just a mad dream of his. Or whether it was always like that, I don't know. But that's how he's described as being now. Yeah. Hmm. Have either of you ever actually used Azathoth in a scenario? Oh, yes. 
I don't recall ever using him. I mean, maybe making reference to him, but how have you used him, Matt? Um, I wrote a scenario that I went around the convention circuit with a few years ago um, that was set during the English Civil War and used him as a metaphor for the king of the universe in that a person in the scenario, the, the main human antagonist, wanted to ascend to the throne of, the, um, the throne of England, but then realised, no, there's a bigger throne that you could potentially dethrone someone from and take control of the universe itself. So it's, um, the scenario revolves around this ultimately futile effort of trying to dethrone a god. That it's again, it's almost a, it's a metaphor for some of the conflict revolving around the civil war at the time. Mm. It rem I remember now. I played it. Yeah, there you go. Yes. <laughs> Can you think of any other unusual ways to use Azathoth in a, a scenario? And I'd be tempted to use him in a way that almost gives away what my first choice would be: having somewhere that links to the court of Azathoth. Again, it's one of those locations that's a wonderful, evocative place. Some picture it as being just a floating void at the centre of the universe. It's just a pocket of space. There's the Fall of Cthulhu comic that Boom Studios did a while back where they actually represented it as a physical place where you could go and sign the Book of Azathoth. Again, others, it's a place where space, time, everything warps and, again, with this chaotic change, just keeps evolving and changing and breaking down and forever in flux. Having an environment like that is quite dreamlike or nightmarish. So riffing off the area around him and maybe saying that he's part of the essence of the place, not just something that's contained within it. Hmm. Has anyone ever done a scenario or a story that involves cultists of Azathoth uh, infiltrating the Manhattan Project? Because that strikes me as being a really obvious thing. Mm. There is the Atomic Age of um, the Atomic Age Cthulhu book, but I, I will confess I haven't read it. Okay, because, yeah, I, I can see that, yeah, maybe without even knowing, you know, what's going on, they're feeling some kind of pull, some kind of call to what's going on there, <laughs> and just, you know, very clumsily, perhaps being mistaken for, you know, German spies or something, are just trying to insinuate themselves into the Manhattan Project. Or that Einstein was actually a secret Azathoth cultist, and that his calculations <laughs> are one that ultimately bring a small fraction of the god to Earth. <laughs> For my next choice, my number two, I'm choosing everybody's favourite, Neil Arthur Tep. You can't go wrong with a god that can have a thousand faces. It can be anything you like, really. All sorts of things, from monstrous things to... Could be you, could be me. Sportful choice. Could be Randall Flagg. Exactly. <laughs> As Malice Monstorum proposes, yes. <laughs> well, yeah, actually, Stephen King's mentioned that in an interview as well. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Yeah. 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 He appears in Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath and numerous other Lovecraft stories. Well, the one that he's named for, he's quite a different character, isn't he? Mm. So almost a Nikola Tesla type character. Wandering in around the desert in Egypt and doing curious things. But he doesn't seem like a, a god at that point. He's just given the name Nelathotep. He doesn't seem to be the thing that we come to know later, particularly through the game. As, of course, we play Mars of Nelathotep. I think more than any of the other gods, I mean, we struggled a little bit to come up with ways to use some of the gods because, you know, if they manifest, their game enders, and, and sometimes it's difficult to think how to have them manifest. Now, Lathotep is unique in that he is named by Lovecraft as the messenger of the gods. So he is viewed as a vessel to go between the gods and to interact with mankind. Now, what his motivation for interacting with mankind is... That's up to the individual keeper to decide. That can be all sorts of things, and it can be quite unknowable, but it can be also given some direction. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me that, you know, as well as being this apocalyptic figure, there's plenty of scope to use him as the trickster figure, and perhaps even at times as an apparent ally or whatever, because his motivations are always going to be completely unknowable. <laughs> there is the line from the, the Azathoth sonnet, um, that features the Arthur the Tep in the Fungi from Yogoth, where he says, I'm his messenger, the demon said, as in contempt he struck his master's head, where it definitely seems almost like a jester or yeah, very spiteful or very hateful figure. Or, or even just playful. Yeah. yeah, and if there's any powerful human in a, in a Call of Cthulhu game, there's always the temptation to say, ah, oh, it could be Nal Arthur so we see it with Stephen Alziz in The Fate, in Delta Green. Mm -hmm. We see it in, in N, in, uh, in World War Cthulhu. Potentially. But, yeah, well, yeah. all these things, potentially, it's never that, oh, it's definitely Null Arthotep for either of those characters or many others. But it's always an option that, yes. you know, they could be Null Arthotep. 
acting, you know, for whatever unknown purpose in, in strange ways, manipulating people, operating cults, fulfilling strange objectives. In one game I ran, one of the characters had learned the spell, I think, to bring forth Nalathotep, and he, he exercised that spell, but he was already somewhat insane. It was a modern-day game, and they were just in a, in a terraced street in, in Sheffield or something. And later that day, I just had this door-to-door -door salesman turn up, just a, a kind of peddler of dishcloths and so on, uh, and they ended up inviting him in, and they had this kind of very mundane conversation with him, I didn't really communicate to the other players quite what was going on, but to the player that had summoned Nalathotep, <laughs> this guy was just telling, it was just answering all of his questions. But to the other players, it was like just sort of a lot of, just just he was just selling him dishcloths. Uh, and then oh, and like then that. and then he turned away, and the guy's like, you know, wow, Nalathotep was here. <laughs> like, no, you're insane. <laughs> that was not Nalathotep, but was it Nalathotep? Who knows. <laughs> So every, every gypsy peddler who comes to my door now, I'm going to be terrified of that. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't already. <laughs> We've talked about Nialathotep taking human guises a lot, but one thing that comes up, I mean, particularly in uh, Call of Cthulhu scenarios, is the fact that he can also take very monstrous forms. Mm -hmm. uh, I, like, I like the TikTok man. That's a good one. Oh, yeah. Where's that from? Uh, it's, it's from one of the published Chaosium scenarios. It's also reprinted in Malus Monstorum. It's effectively, he is a mechanical man um, made of clockwork. With the, with the name lifted from a Harlan Ellison story. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and also, if you do encounter him as in his human form, he's fairly easy to kill. With yeah. the downside <laughs> that when you've killed him, he kind of splits open and this massive monstrous thing bubbles forth. Hopefully, you kind of have time to run away when that happens, if you do kill somebody and that starts to happen. So if you do get a guy knock at your door and you end up, like, killing him, if he as does, you do. as you do, you know, they, they can, you know, be a bit annoying. When you're getting rid of the body, if it does start to burst forth with putrid eminescence, then get your running shoes on. <laughs> yes, I, I have actually used Neolithotep in a pulp scenario, you know, just to that extent, have him turn up in a human form and just waiting for the players to kill him in an enclosed space. And it's, <laughs> yeah, OK. <laughs> you're asking for it. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't uh, one character get the um, get the motto of "I punched out the Arthletic"? <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah. That, that, this this demonstrates what a different game Pop Cthulhu is. It was one character about of insanity and a forty five revolver, and he'd killed the Arthletic twice. <laughs> <laughs> Take that, God. <laughs> okay, for my second choice. I'm going to go for the very unfortunately named Shubnigarath. As much as I love the god, I really wish Lovecraft had chosen a different name. Anyway, but she turns up in a few Lovecraft stories, but never in person, just as a mention, as a, a name, something that is a vote. Uh, and, you know, she, most notably, I mean, she turns up in uh, The Whisper in Darkness. Uh, where her name is all over that story. The Dunwich Horror, Dreams of the Witch House, even the thing on the doorstep. Uh, she, she is brought up as a mention, but Lovecraft never uses her beyond that. The only reason I think people have come to associate her with being a sort of corrupted fertility goddess is this whole sobriquet of hers, uh, the Black Goat of the Woods with a Thousand Young. And that Thousand Young bit makes her sound very fecund, you know, makes her sound like a mother figure. And I think pretty well everything else has come out of that. And the goat aspect of it as well, also, you know, black goat especially, mm. evokes witchcraft, uh, the woods aspect of it again, witchcraft and nature. So yeah. there, there is a lot packed, a lot of implication packed into There's that. There's a lot packed into that yeah. one phrase. Yes. yes. <laughs> and this is one of the things I like about her, that there is all this stuff that is implied by, by her, which is never directly stated, which means that as a sort of plot device or you know, a tool you can use in a scenario, you can do all sorts of things with her. If you want to do anything that involves body horror, you know, corrupt uh, nature, or people playing with, with forces that they shouldn't in a very scientific way, then Shibnigarath is a natural touchstone for all of these things. Hmm. Yeah, and it's easy to fit her into food and drink-based scenarios. There's a particularly good Delta Green story, which I must mention, uh, from Alien Intelligence, one of the short stories called Operation Looking Glass by Blair Reynolds, 
which is very much, it's kind of what maybe William Burroughs would have written if he'd have written a, a Lovecraftian story. Oh, nice. Not so much in the use of kind of cut-up technique, but in his in the use of, well, it is described as extremely explicit in the, in the introduction, in the brief introduction to the story, and it lives up to it. But it's a great short story. It's really I, good. I, I shall have to investigate. One of the other nice things about Shubnigrath is the fact that she is associated with one of the coolest monsters in the mythos, well, we touched on back in episode 62, The Dark Young. Creation of Sandy Peterson, a very obvious sort of extension of her, you know, of that aspect of, you know, goats and woods and so on, <laughs> these sort of goat tree type things. And one of the things I like about them is the fact that they're not only these kind of huge, hideous monsters that go around stomping and rending and draining strength, but they're also on the whole as intelligent or more intelligent than people so you could you know use them in all sorts of interesting ways again mm. you know as messengers or conduits to this you know this living entity that that you know infects our earth like a disease one of them could turn up at your book club <laughs> anything i mean they're that clever <laughs> it might turn up it might turn up to object why you're making all these books out of trees yes <laughs> <laughs> those trees were my friends <laughs> Oh, there's an idea, a mythos tome that was made from a dark young. Personally, I mean, I've, I've used Shubnigarath more than any other Lovecraftian deity in this I, I don't think that's just you, Scott. I think that's, um, I think that's true. I think she probably is the most commonly used. I mean, I talked about Nalathotep being used a lot. It'd be interesting to see which god has been used most, but I'd put her towards the top. I'd say so, yeah. And I had a couple of ideas for interesting ways of using her. Obviously, it's really easy to do riffs on the thing, and, you know, there's a reason we keep going back to it. It's a classic. Yeah, I kind of thought of, you know, it'd be kind of nice to have, you know, some remote uh, fracking operation run by a, a, an oil company or something like that, shale sands perhaps out in Alaska, or, you know, some completely uninhabited wilderness, somewhere that's actually quite desolate. But there is something deep down beneath the sands, and they, they kind of start bringing bits of this, this lost thing up to the surface. They tap into some aspect of and instead of it being, you know, perhaps straight body horror, that initially it creates wonders, it brings this, this landscape to life in strange new alien ways, and it creates this, this almost alien paradise on Earth. But of course, that's not going to last, is it? Yeah. <laughs> I've done pretty much that same idea, but not in Alaska, or not um, up in the Arctic Circle, but set in the Dust Bowl. Oh, nice. Yeah. That was, I, I like yes. That. In fact, I played that one as well, Matt. Yeah, that's a lot of fun. But I mean, it, the thing with that, I, I played another scenario. Yeah, it was it was one of Kiri's um, old ones. It was uh, a winter landscape, and then there's this little village, and they've kind of got apple trees with lots of apples on, and then there's lots of fruit and everything. And it, it you know, you kind of yes. know straight off that oh, this is uh, something to do with shopping around. Yeah, it, it was basically his take on the Wicker Man. It was fantastic. I think so, yeah. yeah. It lends itself to that very well. Yeah. yeah. And the other little idea that, that occurred to me, which just struck me as being potentially fun, would be perhaps the ringmaster of a circus, travelling circus in the 1920s or 30s, uh, who was raised in the cult of Shibnigarath and has learned her ways, using some of her secrets to populate his freak show. In transients and hobos and so on, or just unfortunates who come past, you know, go into one of his special tents and, and you know, are touched by the mother and come out as something that will attract public attention. People will be willing to pay lots of money to see. And it's on to number one with our top gods. Now, my first choice for people who know me probably have guessed correctly by this point because I've expelled my love for this, this yellow-coloured god quite a bit over the years. I adore Haster. I, I think he is by far the most weird interesting and diverse god that you can use out that out there in the mythos mainly for my love of the king in yellow again when we were talking about the appeal of horror where scott mentioned about yog sothoth being one where you can change the rules quite easily you can do that with haster because this is the god that for me more embodies entropy the, the state of things falling apart and the corruption of everything that it touches that it just changes whatever it touches that what you thought was normal no longer is when you invoke the h so aside from the avatar of the king in yellow how do you view Hasta? 
um, as the as the embodiment of entropy. I don't like the idea of him being this blob that sits at the bottom of the Lake of Harley. I think that's a bit too mundane. I think that it, as a concept, it should be that he is the concept of entropy, and that he is what is at the centre of everything starting to decay and fall apart around you. This all all pervasive and completely unstoppable force that you can't hope to stand up against, you can just hope to run away from, that there is there's nothing that can stop it, and that is quite quite a scary prospect in that in that respect. Mm. One of the things I personally like about Haster is the fact that, again, like some of the other gods we've talked about, he is very badly defined in terms of the source material. I mean, if you go back to the original Ambrose Beers story he came from, he was, what, a, a shepherd boy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go back to the King and Yellow stories, Hester is a place. It's, it's defined in both terms. as It could be yeah. a place or a person or a thing. Yeah. Which yeah. is pretty cool, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think this is one of these areas where, you know, I'll get on my usual old hobby horse, where I feel that it's been ill-served, you know, to some extent by a lot of game materials which have attempted to very rigorously define, you know, what what. Yeah, it's create that kind of canon of this is how it mm-hmm. is. I think that all options should be open. You know, if you want to have Haster as being a place or being a person or something like that, then by all means, you know, it's, it's there in the source material. Yeah, I mean, I've when I've used it in a particular scenario i've said this is the definition but very much outlined it that this is for this scenario that whereas others will attribute it as being a monster that rises out of a lake like the like has been put in at least two scenarios i can think of that there is another option that could say no this is just an all-pervasive intangible force very much like lumley's take on azathoth being the big bang this is just it's an aspect of the universe that is not given personification but um, given a wider more malign consciousness so Lovecraft references Haster once or twice, but does he do yeah. much with him? I don't no. think he does. No, he's pretty much just a whisper in darkness. I think that he's and even mentioned by name. Yeah, I mean he mentions he mentions Haster a couple of times. He mentions the King in Yellow a couple of times, but they're just in you know one of his characters you know fairly typical word salad uh, exclamations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did our friend online uh, Tor describe what was the phrase that he word, used? Word hypnosis. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that, 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 that was genius. That, that summed up so much of Lovecraft's writing for me. Word, word hypnosis. hypnosis. I like that. Now, we can't broach the subject of Hasta without mentioning this, Matt. You've said the name at least three times now. <laughs> Yeah, you might have to get someone else to do. you have to look to in do. a mirror at the same well, time? I'm yeah. not sure. <laughs> where, where, where the hell did this whole thing come from? Do you know where this came from? Because I looked it up today. I was, I did, it wasn't where I thought. I because thought I know it was a scenario. Because he's referred to as the unnameable at some stage, isn't he? Or the unspeakable. It has yeah. to be un, yeah, it has to the un... He who should not be named. He who should well, not be named. Not, not actually, bloody Voldemort. No. no, except I think it actually started out, didn't it, as either unspeakable or unnameable and then became he who should not be named. <laughs> Okay, well, I looked up, I believe this was on Wikipedia, so... Very know, obviously it's true, yeah. Obviously true. But they quoted it as coming from deities and demigods. Ah, okay. Okay, yeah. yeah. That was Before apparently the pulled. origin of the story is that if you say his name three times, you know, he'll turn up and get you. Like Candyman. Yeah. One of the things that Haster, I think, is probably best known for or most used uh, in in modern scenarios is in the form of the king in yellow oh yes <laughs> and again this is something that seems to have you know come about i, I think it probably the the link came about in derlith but it seems to have been codified in uh, in gaming more than anything else this isn't something that comes from lovecraft no no it's very much um, starts from beers doing the concept of the inhabitants of carcosa and then being run forward with Ch- uh, Chambers, who wrote the King in Yellow stories, and then when Lovecraft admit, um, mentioned it in History of the Necronomicon, then Derleth ran from it from there. Again, I think the King in Yellow is a wonderful, weird motif, because Derleth wanted to call it the Haster mythos yeah. originally, didn't he? It's got this unique style to it, this weirdness and this mystique that just uh, it just appeals to me on every level. So it seems strange that the seminar that we recently did at Dragon Me, instead of Is There Too Much Cthulhu in role-playing games would have been, is there too much Haster in role-playing games? That seems weird. 
But the nice thing about The King in Yellow, I think, is this whole idea of it being associated with madness and artistic sensitivity mm-hmm. and and that sort of juxtaposition of the two, the way it insinuates itself mm-hmm. into people's consciousness, almost like a virus. Yeah. It, it's very much a disease, a cor- again, a corrupting influence, like an, an idea that spreads and slowly yeah. corrupts. OK, well, for my number one, I'm going for the big one. It's Cthulhu. Well, what small, more do you want? That small little guy that sits in two underneath uh, an ocean on one miserable planet. When it's you've got, got the whole of time and space, you call him the big one. <laughs> an octopus-like head, bat-like wings, and he lives in a dead city under the sea. Now How great got, is that? Now again, I've got the little mermaid going through my head with... You're not making him big. When he does come out, he can. the rules in the book say he can walk around and he can scoop up 1D3 investigators per round. What kind of? I think that beats any other combat stat, really. <laughs> yeah, there's no, no chance to hit. It's just, you're dead. <laughs> yeah, but you say he's the big one, though. How yes. often does he actually get used? I think I've used him once in a, in a scenario. I don't think I've used him... Many other times, I mean, sometimes we... Even, like, cultists of Cthulhu, it doesn't get used very much. I, I must admit, I, you know, for a recent book I did, I actually wrote up three completely different Cthulhu cults as part of it. Mm. Uh, just for exactly that reason, because I thought Cthulhu was so badly served, I felt like, you know, redressing the balance. Somewhat. It's kind of bizarre, isn't it? We talk about um, Call of Cthulhu, and we had the seminar about is there too much Cthulhu in role-playing games? And Cthulhu pervades role-playing games, internet, you know, the whole thing with all the, the plush and the, and everything is kind of Cthulhu related. Actually, how much does he impact on the game? He's just just yeah, just that. yeah, he's an icon. Yeah, he's an icon of the the kind of Lovecraftian universe. Which which I think is a shame because you know Cthulhu as a kind of giant Godzilla stompy type monster isn't necessarily that interesting. I mean, really is interesting. Um, you know the the, the whole non Euclidean dead city under the sea. Yeah, the fact that he is both dead and alive and dreaming is interesting. And dreaming, I that, love that. that. But it's the dreamy part that really appeals to me. The fact that he is this beacon of madness spreading out across the world again, like a disease. Mm-hmm. You know, as we were talking about with the King in Yellow, going out there, touching sensitive minds and, and warping them, changing them, putting ideas in there. And that, to me, is by far the most interesting aspect of Cthulhu. Yeah, I think his ability to touch people's dreams, that's what I used in a scenario. I had them, the culmination of the scenario was such that they'd been contacted by Cthulhu's dreams and they get drawn into his dreams and they... In, in his dreams, he's under the sea, so suddenly they're just kind of lifted off the ground and around them they can see the shapes of seaweed and fish and whales passing overhead and maybe deep ones floating off to the sides, but they're half dreamlike. This is where I had kind of Cthulhu come in as a big dreamlike figure, but, he, you know, in their dream he sort of becomes real and sort of stomps through the valley, kind of scooping up people and eating them. Occasionally... People didn't get to the end of the scenario, but they'd, they'd turn up in the valley and it would all be over and there'd just be, like, seaweed and dead bodies everywhere. <laughs> so that that was my kind of take on Cthulhu of actually trying to directly bring the god in. Otherwise, what are you going to do? You're going to get on a boat and go to the South Pacific, which, you know, sounds kind of nice, but not if really a happens to be poking out the sea at that time of year. I think one of the most interesting representations I've seen of Cthulhu, or at least his cults, in fiction was that stillborn TV series from the 1970s or 80s, Rough Magic. Oh, yeah. Cthulhu's never mentioned by name. He's just referred to as the sleeper uh, throughout it. But it's, again, this whole idea of this, this government agency or this special team that's put together to sort of counteract the threat that every now and then perfectly ordinary people just have you know, these dreams enter their minds and they're changed. It, it, it becomes like a very dark version almost of uh, Close Encounters from the, thir- uh, the Third Kind. They start making idols or representations It was very much like that, wasn't it? Yeah, the yeah. little figures and things and, uh, that they start to create. Oh, and then they start sacrificing. Yeah, I did suffer from the horrors, the, the real horror of uh, 1980s fashion and, you know, TV production and, and so on. Yeah, yes. The, the couple of times where they attempt to use visual effects, they would have been better off not doing so. It, it was a pilot, though. Yeah. Essentially what we're saying is Cthulhu himself doesn't see enough love in role-playing games actually appearing in Call of Cthulhu games. Yeah. I think what he needs is a better agent that 
Arab, what is his name? Abdul Alhazred. He's yeah. just not cutting it. You know, he's not giving Cthulhu the action that he should be getting. So, yeah, there is a vacancy out there. If you feel like you're the right person for the job, you know, send, send your CV to us. Yeah, we'll, we'll put you in touch. Yep. Well, for my top choice, I am going to be willfully perverse. I am choosing a goddess here that Lovecraft did mention, he did write about, but only actually in an essay. It's an unusual choice as being part of the mythos because she's actually a mythological deity. And that, of course, is Bast. This, this coming from the guy who has lots of cats at home is hardly a shocking surprise. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so she is truly a mythological deity. Yeah, she is an ancient Egyptian goddess, the goddess of cats. And that representation of hers we see in Call of Cthulhu of being, you know, a, a human woman uh, dressed in dark robes with a cat head. You know, I mean, that comes from Bast iconography. Um, there, there was even a city that was dedicated to her in Egypt, uh, Bubastis, which was the name that uh, Lovecraft gave to one of his cats. This wasn't the only time that Lovecraft uh, sort of repurposed a real-world mythological uh, entity as part of the mythos. Right, so we got, you know, Nodens and Hypnos mm -hmm. as well. Nodens being the Welsh king of the fairies. And <laughs> Although I vaguely remember reading in the, um, again, in the um, Encyclopedia Cthuliana that Lovecraft didn't acknowledge the fact that Hypnos was a um, Greek god. Oh, right. That he didn't know of the existence of the god and just, oh, happy coincidence. Yes, that honestly. seems very unlikely. Mm -hmm. Lovecraft obviously loved cats. He used cats an awful lot in his stories, and you know, particularly uh, Drinkwest von and Kadath, and uh, more especially the cats of Ulthar. So there's sort of the insinuation of Bast there, but it wasn't until he got round to writing his essay, Cats and Dogs, where he actually mentioned Bast by name. But she never turns up directly in any of his stories. On the other hand, Robert Bloch, when he started extending the mythos, certainly decided to fix that and ended up making lots of references to Bast and using Bast in, in an awful lot of his stories. I mean, she does turn up every now and then in Call of Cthulhu scenarios. Yeah, I've certainly been in a game where she's been a figure. Uh, mm -hmm. Was it in Martha and Laugh? Yeah, it's the, it's the Cairo chapter where there's the in insanity by cats incident yeah. that just dried, nearly drove me completely mad. Bloody you the cats. player or you the the character? The character nearly went. The, the investigator right. went. Almost went mad just because of the bloody cats. It does get pretty like enough of the cats already. Yeah, and yeah. there's she turns up and you just can't get rid of her. And there's all these cats. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there was certainly a Cult of Keepers scenario that I played. Um, I can't remember who wrote it. Wim ran it. Uh, where you, you at some you, you started out, I think, playing human characters, but at some point in the Dreamlands, you got transformed into cats. Oh, I don't think I played that one. All oh, right, yeah, I, well, I remember playing it, and and Bast was certainly involved with that. Oh. and and certainly I've I've used Bast in uh, well, I I think the title of the scenario is probably enough to give it away. Um, John, tell us the title, Scott. <laughs> I love it's a this glorious one. title. Uh, a, a scenario called Catland, sometimes called Pussydom. It sort of involves Bast, but it involves a variant of Bast, one that you don't really want to meet. But not wanting to meet a god. What a crazy man are you? Well, but that's the thing about Bast, because she is one of the mythos deities, or at least one of the Lovecraftian deities, who will actually interact with human beings. That, you know, unlike a lot of the others, you can meet her and walk away from it. She is probably fairly neutral to you. you you'll get on her bad side if you end up hurting a cat or uh, you know, doing something to piss her off. And... Of course, being feline by nature, you know, she's got that capricious hunting nature. So you may end up in her sights again for the wrong reasons there. Mm. But on the whole, you know, she is a far more benign figure than almost any other that you'd find in the mythos. But if you give her biscuits and rub her belly, she's <laughs> fine then, or...? You, you don't want to rub the belly of a strange cat. Oh, OK. One way that you could um, get rid of Bast, throw a hound of Tindalos at her. <laughs> Think cats and dogs. Chase her up a tree. Yeah, <laughs> through four dimensions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if there were, there was a goddess of the internet, surely it must be Bast, must not? Oh it? God, yes. Lol, Bast. I was, I was just thinking grumpy Bast. <laughs> <laughs> Your number one choice has received more mockery than any of the others, Scott. How do you feel? My, my work here is done. Well, except it's not done because I haven't given you anything you can actually use Bast for yet. So I, I came up with a couple of little hooks. The fact that the Bast and, and more particularly the cats that, that she looks after can slip in and out of the dreamlands is a fantastically powerful thing. 
if you, you know, mistreated a cat even accidentally, if you got on her wrong side, the fact that you know, you may, you know, it may be bad enough facing Bast and, and her minions in the real world, but once you start getting inside your dreams, once you start getting cats, you know, inside your head while you're sleeping, that's got to be a hideous curse, you know, just slowly being driven mad. Maybe, you know, it's just meowling sounds keeping you awake all night, so eventually you go mad from sleep deprivation. Maybe you wake up with scratches all over your body and you don't know where they came from. Yeah, or, or maybe you just, you know, your identity just gets eaten away, scratched, you know, bit by bit, and, and every day you just wake up slightly more lost in dream. We've talked a little bit about avatars. Certainly, you know, there, there's talk of avatars of Bast, but it struck me that why would an avatar of Bast have to be a human one? Let's say you're, you're in a scenario at some stage and this little grey kitten starts following you around. Mm. It wants something, perhaps it's being a bit playful, perhaps it's being a pain in the arse, making funny noises, just demanding attention. What if that is just Bast having entered one of her minions, just deciding to fuck with you? you, know, it, it, you know, it's, it's a little playful kitten, it looks absolutely harmless, and hiding in there is a goddess that can rip you to shreds in three combat rounds. <laughs> You're missing a trick. Go you know on. what cats like? Lasagna. Okay, well, I'm not going to say it. Ball of twine? Ball of string? <laughs> oh, of course. Non-verbal communication oh, where Paul yeah. points to a certain thing. Yeah. You're actually opening the floodgates here. You're actually I, I giving me permission. This. Okay, no, I can yeah. edit this out. Be, 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 because, of course, yes, yes, the, this... This sounds like the perfect kind of example of how a tracked fish can go wrong. Here, here, little fishy. Oh shit, what's going on with the fish? <laughs> <laughs> the good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. So as we mentioned at the top of the show, we have now hit the $75 level on Patreon thanks to a kind donation by Christopher Glue. Yes, thank you, Christopher. You have pushed us over the brink of madness into producing the Blasphemous Tome. So from here on, it's all your fault. Thank you. Indeed, thanks for the push. Thanks. Cheers, Christopher. And another backer we have to thank. It's putting a thank you out there to Patrick Sandoval. Yes, thank you, Patrick. Thank you very much, Patrick. And also, thank you very much to Lee Williams. Yes, thank you, Lee, uh, and for all your hard work on Proto Dimension as well. Uh, Lee is the editor of an online fanzine, uh, which we should uh, give a give we, a shout out we, to. We should do, particularly as it's actually very good. Indeed. Which is available free of charge uh, at the website protodimension.com. Yeah, seconded. There's a lot of good scenarios that come in there. Lots of stuff for Dark Conspiracy, the occasional Unknown Army scenario. Yeah, Call lots of, good of Cthulhu, stuff. Delta Green. Yeah. Yeah, and whenever I put anything out on Twitter about the good friends, Lee is always straight on there, um, retweeting us and uh, sending comments. So thanks very much, Lee. Yes, thank you. Now, my friends, it's time for the real horror. Oh, boy. Another person <laughs> has backed us at $5 on our Patreon. So if you don't know, you may want to... If, if you haven't experienced this before, you may now want to, you know, put your hands over your ears... Um, stop listening, run away, fast forward button, smash your MP3 player, or, or just generally abandon all hope in everything that is good and right in the universe. But we are pledged to sing a thank you to Dave Garwood. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Dave Garwood. That was a lot of gods. Nine of them. Nine gods. Admittedly, one was a thousand, so it's almost like one thousand and eight. That was a good bit of mental arithmetic there, Matt. <laughs> it's late and I've had a lot of food tonight. Okay. <laughs>
You've had a Thanksgiving dinner, I believe. Yeah, indeed. Uh, Tiff did try to kill us via food. Uh, like I tried to kill Scott through alcohol, Tiff tried it with a Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, and between you, you've, you've almost succeeded. Uh, oh, so I, much good food, though. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, it was marvellous, and I am going to die. <laughs> you just roll me home now. <laughs> I think this was an interesting enough topic, though. Yeah, it raised a few questions when we were going through and preparing this about the nature of Lovecraftian gods, different interesting ways we could use them and so on. But I think we've probably got at least one follow-up episode here. Yeah, I'd like to talk about contact and call spells in Call of Cthulhu, how they can be used and how you can bring gods into your games without it just being an instant total party kill. Gods fall, everyone dies. <laughs> I summon Cthulhu, the, th the words that end most campaigns. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Until then, it's goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello. BlasphemousTomes.com Feed me.